0: Hello and welcome to ABB Decoded, the podcast that tries to press pause on our fast moving lives and make sense of the technology and trends that are shaping our world. We're joined for this episode, the first of 2022, by Brazilian racing driver and ABB ambassador Lucas Degrassi, whose name will be familiar to anyone who has followed Formula One and ABB Formula E over the past decade. Degrassi's exploits as a high level sportsman are well documented. He was Formula E champion in the series' third season and, with Season 8 of the World Championship about to start, he remains a front-running competitor. But more significant for listeners of this podcast are Degrassi's credentials as an environmental evangelist, who is passionate and articulate about the power of sport to draw attention to causes of concern, such as the global climate challenge. His heartfelt and long-standing belief in the need to harness technology in order to tackle climate change makes him a very uncommon racing driver – one who has a vision beyond the chequered flag and the confines of his cockpit. These qualities also make him a perfect ambassador for ABB in the ABB FIA Formula E World Championship. And at the pre-season race testing week held late last year in Valencia, he joined us to share his views on everything from e-mobility to carbon trading schemes. Incidentally, as we recorded this interview at a race circuit, you might hear a little background rush from electric racing cars whizzing past as Degrassi takes the hot seat.
1: So, uh, my name is Lucas Degrassi. I'm a a Rocket Venturi race driver this season, uh, car number 11, and also ABB ambassador and also UN ambassador.
0: Very good. So, we're here in Valencia for the, the first pre season test for season eight. Perhaps you could just give us a few impressions about being back in the cockpit bit of development how things, how things yeah go. it's
1: you know uh, when we come to Valencia it's like uh, going back to school You see the people that you haven't seen for a few months and uh, people in different teams and engineers changing from one side to another and uh, drivers also changing
0: uh,
1: new drivers coming up so it's all, always very interesting to see what people have developed during the break and uh, how people are ready for the first race and yeah so, so far has been really good Valencia the weather at least this year has been uh, very favorable to us and uh, we can, uh, especially in my case, which is a new team for me, I'm uh, using all this time to get used to the procedures, methodology, everything that, uh, that needs to be done before the start of the season.
0: And that aspect of preparation, what, what, do you feel cold when you come back to uh, getting back in the cockpit? Or is it just, uh, you know, is it part of a continuum, really? Uh, it
1: takes a few it takes a few laps to to, you know, to get back into rhythm. Also, like, parts of your body hurting, like, specific parts of the neck specific parts of the back you know because you haven't done that exercise for so long and although we do a lot of uh, physical preparation it's not the same you know it's like uh, it's something very very specific driving a race car and uh, it's it's very good to be back and knowing that now the next time we're going to drive is going to be almost two months uh, to to saudi it's actually uh, we have to use all the time that we can
0: And do you feel the progress from the end of last season? Do you feel that things have stepped on a little bit now? For me,
1: it's very difficult to say because uh, I I changed teams. So I'm definitely finding uh, positives and negatives in the inventory compared to my other team. Uh, With the negatives means that uh, there are stuff that we can do slightly better, which is very good. Uh, And the positive is something that we were not doing before that I found very interesting. So uh, overall, by, by... by having this previous knowledge and combining with the team's knowledge, we can achieve, I think, uh, a much higher uh, a level of performance, which is always good. If, if I arrive in Venturi and there was nothing new or, um, or uh, everything would be perfect, uh, I think the, the would not have been ideal. It's good that we have to you know, uh, integrate some stuff and make
0: it better. It uh, means that we're moving forward. And last night, of course, in Valencia, we saw the, uh, the launch of the Gen 3 car, which will be in Formula E from yeah. Season 9. Perhaps you could give us a few impressions of what you saw. So uh, the Gen 3
1: starts with uh, incredible technical specifications. So we have 600 kilowatts of power, both on regen and power. Having 600 kilowatts of power is actually not so difficult uh, with a big battery. But having 600 kilowatts of regen means charge is unbelievable like in, in a normal so people understand in a, in a normal car 600 kilowatt of power means that you're gonna charge 200 kilometers of range in 5 minutes uh, which is like unbelievable so the first start with this spec and then we, the, the car will be 100 kilos lighter uh, so more than twice the power 100 kilos lighter 4 wheel drive this already like changes completely the game the car will be a A monster, And then uh, there was presented a new design, which the front part of the car I'm not really fan of. I thought that the front wing, I thought that um, I like the Gen 2 design in which the wheels are covered. I think this is more aero-efficient and safer for the races. I don't like the wheels being exposed. And And the Gen 3 has the wheels exposed, especially the front one. So for me, I don't like that. I would like to have it to keep the same identity as Gen 2 with the front wheel cover, also more efficiency. But the rest of the car, especially the rear end, is very, very good, really aggressive. And uh, and the car looks very robust, which for Formula E is very important because we race in city centers and there's always some touches here and there. and uh, It's part of the game, it's part of the action. So I I left uh, the launch of the Gen 3 extremely positive, surprised, and excited about the technical specs. And positively
0: surprised with the design overall because you've been in formula e since the very very beginning in fact you're a founding partner i believe of the championship Uh, yeah i was the
1: the third employee of formula e where before there was not even a gen 1 car it
0: was july 2012 so the the progress that you see and looking to the future the way you've just outlined it now i mean it's an astonishing amount of progress in in evs and e-mobility that you see there
1: Yes. So in 2012, when Formula E really started, it actually started in July 2012, very few people talked about EVs. You looked at the Tesla stock was uh, nowhere. The amount of cars sold were um, negligible to the overall landscape. And in 10 years, we saw a complete revolution. Now, everybody that I speak... Uh, if there is not a technical constraint, so, if, for example, if somebody drives 500 kilometers a day every day or there are know, commercial vehicles in some ways, everybody's thinking about electric cars. Um, everybody's talking about electric cars. People, first, when they drive electric cars, they're super excited about it. It's more fun to drive. It's more quieter. They feel that uh, also don't have to fuel uh, anymore, so it changes the dynamic of the vehicle. So the world has shifted from thinking that EVs back then was just like an idea and a futuristic view to the present. Now EVs are the present, it represents roughly 10% of the sales. All the major manufacturers already committed to pretty much producing only EVs in a time frame from 5 to 10 years. So with this comes a big change in infrastructure, chargers, for example, ABB is doing like this supercharger with 300 kilowatts, which is very important for electric cars to become mainstream and uh, to reduce range of anxiety and some other problems. So the infrastructure, the energy generation, there are other problems around, the supply chain, battery production, which battery technology to use, uh, lithium ion with an NMC or iron phosphate. And the, the, there are now the EVs. Futuristic problems, uh, let's say, let's say, which way is going to go. But everybody is aware that it's going to go electric, nonetheless. So it's a, a very exciting times, and to see that a bet that we did ten years ago is actually being fulfilled is a it's a it's a very, for me, a, as good as my racing career has been with Formula E is a personal accomplishment to see that the bet that I made is actually the
0: right bet. This is a really interesting point, I think, because if you looked at it in a purely racing terms, obviously you're a consistent winner, you're a past champion, you're winning at the end of the season, so you've always been at a very high level in ABB Formula E, but as well as that, you've always seen the bigger picture with what this championship represents and what it's meant to show. So do you feel vindicated, actually, that it's come to the level it's at and potentially has a very good future still? Yes, I always saw motorsport as something much more than the track. I started, actually, I decided
1: when I was young, that I wanted to be a racing driver, was not because I loved races. It was because I saw the impact of Ayrton Senna had in the Brazilian population, and especially when he died, the difference that he made uh, in his lifetime. So I always thought motorsport is very cool. I'm a very competitive guy, and I love competing. But I always saw motorsport as a platform for businesses, for a platform for entertainment for public and source of inspiration. Sport in general is a big source of inspiration. And that's what I wanted to do and Formula E really fit the purpose of that. Uh, before I was doing some NGOs when I was in Formula 1 and some and in Le Mans I was doing some other, other projects like uh, bringing kids from the favelas to have a first experience with a go-kart but it was never very clear which direction. And when Formula E came about and I started to understand that the future was going to be electric and that was going to have an impact on people's quality of life because of air quality, uh, more democratic mobility because it's going to be cheaper to go from point A to B for everybody, um, uh, a revolution also helping climate change. So for me, it was the, really fitting the purpose that I wanted to with the passion that I have. And really, it became, for me, my my, my goal of my life to, to, to be successful in Formula E and to see Formula E succeeding as well.
0: Your interest in environmental issues and your campaigning around them, where where does that come from? If we look very deep, it comes from ethics. So ethics and I think
1: morality, in the sense that I believe after you reached, after every person got their base accomplishments in life, which means you have somewhere to live, you have enough food, um, you have education, you have health, then what is the next step in your... What need to be your next step towards society? You need to make society better. You need to create this base for other people that are not there. I think from any industry, any angle, people have to work towards getting their base done. After that, trying to improve society mm-hmm. somehow, uh, try to move humankind forward. And for me, it's using basically the technology and know-how of what I do and what we do in racing towards making the world a better place. It's not about activism. If the electric technology would not have been ready to do that uh, and you want to push a technology just because it's clean, I don't think it's the right approach. Uh, I don't think it's the right approach to force people to change to electric cars if it's not economically viable or not create value for them in short, mid, long term. So we are now in a position in which electric cars, they can make a, a positive change for society and create more value and that's why this uh, activism
0: comes from so so is it true that you're saying you, you actually feel a sense of responsibility almost or, or, or duty i think everybody should sense this sense of responsibility or duty
1: in their profession like what's the point of being a journalist and spreading fake news or reporting a biased vision or something just because you get paid to do so what's the point of uh, developing a, a or doing a scam or developing a business which does not create value, but you take from others to just improve your life. I don't think that's the right approach for life in general. I think you have to, of course, you have to make money, you have to have your life that you want to have, but you can do that generating value. So economy is not a zero-sum game. You can actually be rich at the same time making the other people richer. And that's the goal. And when you look at from this perspective, by adding, solving the problem of climate change, of emissions, you create value and you can actually make a business case out of this as well. So this is where, for me, it makes a lot
0: of sense. Now, of course, this is something you talked about at COP, when you were at COP26 in, in Glasgow. You made some of these points uh, in, 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 your, in your public presentation. Perhaps you could just explain some of those ideas.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, for example, uh, talking about uh, climate change in general, it's very unfair that countries that have gone through the carbon cycle, they have gone through a burning coal and fossil fuels, and because of doing that, like England with the Industrial Revolution, but oh Europe, US as well. But let's take the case of England. England got rich and improved massively the quality of lives of their citizens because they were burning fossil fuels. And now I think it's not allowing some countries like developing countries like Africa and India and South America Southeast Asia, to go through the carbon cycle, just prohibit these countries to do so because climate change is a problem, because it was initially caused by those countries. I I don't think that's uh, the correct way to do it. I think there must be some kind of reward or some kind of incentive for a country either to leapfrog some technology, goes from, for example, Africa, burning biomass, which is very inefficient and causes a lot of climate problems, to go directly to, let's say, burning natural gas or directly to go, let's say, building a nuclear power plant in Africa. They don't have the complex. They don't have the money to do that, neither the technology. But you cannot just enforce top-down saying they cannot develop economically because to develop economically, your energy consumption must go higher. What people do when they develop economically, they spend more energy. They 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 buy a, a new air conditioning. If they have more energy, they buy two. If they have, um, they eat more protein, which also generates methane and CO2, which is also a problem. So all these billions of people that, let's say, half of the world does not have access to the internet regularly, half of this world still needs to go to the development cycle that the developed countries has gone through. So there must be one way of creating this capital inflow, and one way of doing this is uh, with carbon credits, so creating a worldwide carbon base that uh, an average person in the U.S., they use 17 times more carbon than an average African. So wh- what is fair? So actually, if you want to compare oranges with oranges in the in the carbon world, you need to have a capital inflow for these people spending a lot of carbon in the U.S. to some, somebody in Africa and also to Brazil and also to help these countries to develop quicker. Actually, the easiest thing to, to avoid problems with climate change in the short term is actually developing the countries, creating better... Irrigation systems creating better infrastructure for the people and creating a more uh, uh, robust food supplies and food storage and so on. So that's my point. Is uh, I think the this is one of the main problems to solve, how to develop the world economically, especially the poor regions, without causing even more damage to the climate. And that's a very, very, very tricky question. And actually Bill Gates goes through that in detail in his book his latest book, and you can see how difficult it is, and there is not one solution. It will be a combination of many different
0: solutions. It's very unusual to hear a racing driver speak like this. If you don't mind me saying, do, do you sometimes feel that you're you're out on your own, or do you have uh, do you have like-minded people around you?
1: No, I, actually, I have um, a few other racing drivers that we can actually have in this discussion. Uh, last week, me, Nico Rosberg, and Bruno Senna. Uh, Nico is also very enthusiastic on the. Uh, let's say on the environmental world, maybe a little bit less technical background on some topics, but he's very interested in investing and looking. And, and we went and I organized for us a visit in the ITER, the nuclear fusion thermal reactor they are building in the south of France, which will be the first experience with a uh, nuclear fusion uh, in a big scale. It's a $40 billion project, uh, has been built for like 40 years and we went and visited that, and we were discussing about this, about the climate change, about uh, uh, companies, about uh, plastic problems in the oceans, and some other stuff. And it, it is a, it's a fascinating topic, and uh, it's, uh, yeah, and I, I just love it. That's why I, I understand it because I like it, I research it, I read books, I, re- I watch videos about it. So uh, it's,
0: it's, it's, it's part of my life. And do you feel? Um I mean, you've been a racing driver quite a long time. I'm sure you still have sporting ambitions. But do you, do you see a future beyond racing where this, th- these sort of topics is actually what, what you do? And, and people think that was Lucas Degrassi who used to be a racing driver. Now it's Lucas Degrassi who does something else.
1: Hopefully, yes. Um, at the moment, I, I do some of that on the, on the sides. I have a few companies that I invest and a few businesses that I create or help to create or co create sometimes in this space because it's the pace I understand better, so I could really see where it's going. Uh, but yeah, after I stop racing, I'm not that far away from, from stopping. I would say <coughs> I will stop in Formula e, so I will not do any other series after Formulae. So if it's one more year, two, three, or four, or five, I don't know, but definitely I'm already in the last, let's say, 20% of my career that has been uh, already... Um, I'm very grateful to what I've achieved in motorsport, and that's just a kid coming from Brazil and to be in, living in Europe racing the fastest cars of the world for m- the biggest portion of my life is just a, a dream come true and then for sure in the next half of my life I would like to I don't know if work in motorsport or around motorsport or around Formula E but definitely something with, a, with a, in this area I would like to continue because I, I love this I love the racing I love the people around Formula E but at the same time, I want to create a, a meaningful company and to create a meaningful legacy. So, yeah, I will continue work, that's for sure.
0: Do you feel optimistic? You, you talk so enthusiastically about, you know, e-mobility and you talk with great passion about climate mm-hmm. topics and environmental topics. Do you, when you see something like the Gen 3 car, do you, do you get a sense of, um, you know, how the world can develop? Do you actually feel that? Do you feel optimistic about these things?
1: Yeah, the Gen 3, of course you can see the technology evolving is amazing and is a way of showing people and creating emotion. When you see projects like the Eater, which is a combination of 35 countries producing parts all over the world, parts that weigh up to 1,500 tons each part, and they have to fit with half a millimeter precision, and they operate in between minus 270 degrees and plus 150 million degrees. It gives me hopes for humanity because how can you do something like this? I mean, how people can organize in a way that are going to replicate the nuclear reactions that happens in the center of the sun in one spot in the middle of France with parts being built by 35 different countries. So how people are organized about around the racing series to promote electric mobility and sustainability. And we race around the world with the thousands and hundreds of thousands supporting the series and still manage to do so, having fun and creating a nice sport. So yeah, it definitely gives me hope. And the only way we're going to achieve that is through technology. So companies that are involved with Formula E, understanding the infrastructure side like ABB, uh, the technology that is around, the vehicles, the, the charging, the energy that comes to the vehicles, the, the recyclability of some components and stuff. So all, all of this gives me a lot of hope. And definitely it's through technology that we're going to achieve, uh, we're going to leave a better legacy and a better world for the future
0: generations. How do you focus on qualifying laps when you've got thoughts like that going <coughs> in, in your brain at the same time?
1: I think when I put my helmet and I close the visor, my mind focuses on what I have to do at the track. Uh, especially here is a track that I've been around uh, hundreds of times, so it's it's uh, you know like the back of my hand. Um, but yeah, um, during the we have very little test days, so we have these three test days and we have two months. So yeah, when I'm here, I'm fully focused on what I have to do. But then when I go home. I look at data, I do some reports, but in the end I have so many books to read and so much more articles to, to do that I feel, uh, yeah, to, to, to get inf- informed about these topics is very important as well.
0: And just on a racing level, uh, what are your hopes and ambitions for season eight?
1: To win the championship. Uh, last year it, the, the, the team performed very well. My teammate finished second. So it's a current vice world champion. I finished seventh. I won the second last race. And also Puebla and also would have won Rome, the drive shaft broke down and would have won also London if it was not the, If I would have stopped in the pit lane in the right moment. Uh, so two technicalities for winning the title last year, basically. So I'm very confident that the performance is there, the team is there, so we have a good package. And with the changes that we had this year, with the, we have a new qualifying format, new race power, 10% more power, we'll play in our favor. So I think we're in a strong position.
0: I'd just like to ask you a little bit about Ayrton Senna as well, because obviously arguably the most famous racing driver ever. You're Brazilian. What, what did he really mean to you? When he, when he, he died, uh, I was
1: very young. I was nine years old. I was uh, learning how to fly my RC aeroplane. I was not watching the race. And I remember when I arrived home my father said there was an accident with the brazilian driver Ayrton senna and he's not well and then we watched all the follow ups and when it was announced that he died like it was a big commotion like my father was crying i was crying i didn't even know the guy like properly you know so that brazil stopped for like 3 days so that created a sense like Wow, like this motorsport is really something powerful. It's not just a sport, it's something for a kid. You know, when I was nine years old, I was racing go karts, but I was racing go karts, I was fighting karate, I was uh, playing tennis, football. Actually, I wanted to be a football player because Brazil, you know, football player is. So all my friends wanted to be football players, nobody drove karts. Uh, so um, it gave me that sense that, wow, if I focus on this, I want to become like this guy. Let's try, because it's not something easy. And I knew that, but let's give it the best shot. Worst case, you learn and move on. And that was my, my vision since then. My mom didn't have this vision. <laughs> my mom said, uh, if you don't do well at school, you stop racing go-karts. So actually, I was doing very well at school and just to race go-karts. But that was a good incentive in the end. And uh, when, I, when I entered the university, then I had the call uh, to come to Europe to do a, a test to join Renault, actually, the development driving scheme, uh, in 2003. And I did a test. I got selected. So I joined, like, this group of six. It was, like, Kovalainen, uh, it was Kovalainen back then, Grosjean, myself, um, Maldonado, Lopez. It was, like, a few guys that are still racing and very, very uh, – Kubica was there as well. And so, like when I joined, it was like uh, was like this, and and then I stayed there for like six years. Did Formula Three, Formula Two, then F1, and then I joined Audi, and has been like with Audi for nine years. And then it's the first time in almost ten years that I changed teams. So it has been a a, a good uh, follow through.
0: And just one last one, the If we're sitting here in ten years' time, what do you think, uh, Lucas Degrassi might be doing?
1: What I would like to be doing, if you ask me today, of course. Trying to predict the future is probably the most dumb thing one can do. But if you ask me today what I would like to be in 10 years, I would say CEO of Formula E or FIA president or or at the board, or let's say an advisory board of Formula E, an advisory board of the other series that I co-created, like the Scooter Championship, like uh, Extreme E, which I also co-invested with Alejandro at the very beginning. So, or either at the, some advisory in different different championships so having like small roles in different areas of something that I know, which is electric motorsport, or running one business full-time, let's say a CEO or at the board level or, a, you know, on a, on a daily, on a, more on a daily basis. So either be an advisor or this, or if it's nothing to do with motorsport, probably again, uh, co-invested in some technology businesses. And be at the board level, trying also to make those business grow. I love uh, venture capital, small companies going up. uh, So
0: I would like to do that as well after I stop. I'm sure it's going to be an interesting uh, decade. Anyway. Thank you. And thank you, Lucas Degrassi, for taking the time to join us for this episode of ABB Decoded. We'll be following you very closely on and off track throughout the season. And if you've enjoyed this interview, why not like, subscribe and share ABB Decoded wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time.